class that's morning spelled with a u for wordplay purposes thank you for listening to ghoul school a horror history podcast on the unpops network i am andy sell and i would love if you could rate and review this show it helps get the show on more people's radar and that's what i want because i'm empty inside and the things i do mean less to me if fewer people are validating my effort (laughs) jk jk if you don't want to rate and review that's fine but it's cool if you do. I want to take this opportunity real quick to give a shout out to the person who correctly guessed on Twitter the exact moment that I stopped watching the show Midnight Club on Netflix. I want to say congrats and apologies. I did not write anything down. I let it slip through the cracks. And the shout-out that you were owed, I can't give you because you deleted your Twitter account, which, no judgment, I get it. I want to delete mine every day, all day. But I can't, I I didn't write your name down, I totally messed up, and then when I went to go find it, you, your account was gone. So, leave a comment on my Instagram or something, and, and I'll get you the proper shout-out. This is going to be a weird episode. I mean, they're all weird, right? Everything's weird right now. But you might actually even be already shaking your head about the title of the episode. You might be saying out loud, You can't start your slashers until you finish your found footage, young man. And I have two things to say to that. One, I'm not very young, actually. I'm in my 40s. And two, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I promise. I am doing work on more found footage episodes. In fact, the next episode is going to be another found footage episode. But in the meantime, I want to start talking about slashers to get you all ready for the upcoming slasher semester, because I'm just really excited about it. And you're going to hear the whys for that in this episode, because my guest today is Philip Johnson who is also excited about slashers. And if you're unfamiliar with that name, please listen to our podcast, Look Good for the Boys, a horror gossip podcast. That's right. Philip Johnson is my co-host and co-producer on that show. He's also been a very close friend of mine for 20 years now. In fact, over 20 years. He and I became friends working in the projection booth of a movie theater together and bonded really quickly over horror movies. And because we're both children of the 80s, a lot of times that involved slasher movies. So I'm really excited about this conversation we have, and it's pretty informal. It's more of a gorientation episode. It's introductory. So we're going to be a little light today. But next month, after the next found footage episode, late December, we are jumping more or less right into slashers. 
Now, there will be more found footage episodes coming after that. The, the semesters are kind of bleeding together right now. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm leaning into my ADHD, and I have to jump around a little bit. And when we get into the slasher semester, like, full steam, there will be a lot of jumping around in the timeline and backtracking to kind of cover stuff because I don't want to get too much into all of the history that led to the conditions that created the slasher subgenre, because a lot of that stuff deserves its own focus. But we will go over some of it, again, in the late December episode, which canonically will be a Christmas episode. But after that, in the slasher season, we're going to cover a lot. It's going to be thorough, if not comprehensive. And I will be trying to provide viewing lists for each episode because a few people have asked for that. But throughout that season, I'm really going to try to illustrate, likely repeatedly, that slasher movies have earned and deserve their place in the genre because they're not anomalous. They're not radical, disrespectful inversions of what came before. Slasher conventions are gothic traditions. Write that down, it'll be on the test. Anyway, before we get into today's conversation with Philip Johnson about why we love slasher movies, I'd like to kind of dip our toes in by acknowledging a film that I personally believe deserves more recognition, but I'm afraid even that is going to require a little scene setting. Lay sigh, I am me, after all. In the last week of August 1920, a play titled The Bat opened on Broadway. It was written by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood, adapted from Reinhardt's 1908 novel The Circular Staircase. Side note, remember those names, Reinhardt and The Circular Staircase, because they're going to come up again later in the slasher semester. For now, it's enough to just know that The Circular Staircase was a huge success and is responsible for introducing a number of mystery narrative conventions. The Bat, the play based on it, was actually the second live theater collaboration between Reinhardt and Hopwood. The first being the 1909 adaptation of Reinhardt's novella, Seven Days. And that was a hit. So by the time they set to work on The Bat, they were comfortable and confident in their creative partnership, and they were able to make some risky changes to the material that paid off in big ways. Now, the play differs from the novel in several ways, the most notable being the addition of the titular villain, the Bat. But the basic story remained largely unchanged and is familiar to us now. Big mansion that people think is haunted, stormy night, lights flicker, news report that a violent criminal has escaped custody nearby, disappearances and murders, and whodunit, question mark. It was by no means the first mystery comedy, but it was the first to incorporate all these elements so successfully, and it was popular enough to more or less spawn an entire mystery comedy subgenre that would reach across all media. Two years later, the John Willard play, The Cat and the Canary, would add a dead patriarch, a will reading, and a greedy combative family to the formula and the Old Dark House Foundation was cemented. The Cat and the Canary itself would have several direct film adaptations, including the 1927 silent horror Milestone, directed by German expressionist luminary Paul Lenny and produced by Universal, and 
1939 comedy with Bob Hope and Paulette Godard. That 1927 film represents a significant and definitive marriage of post-Cabinet of Dr. Caligari expressionism and murder mystery storytelling. It's a lasting union that runs down the wet, dark alleys of cinema history to noir, to creamy, to poliziotesky, to giallo, to the proto-slasher exploitation era of the early to mid-1970s. A brief but vibrant and rich period of filmmaking. It was that period that led to Black Christmas, to Halloween, to the slasher boom of the 1980s. But before that proto-slasher period even kicked off, in 1964, a full decade before the release of Black Christmas, and the same year as the release of Mario Bava's highly influential Giallo, Blood and Black Lace, fellow Iowan Del Tenney wrote, produced, and directed a movie called The Curse of the Living Corpse. And this is the movie, folks. This is the movie that when a, when a horror fan, a seasoned vet of the genre, asks for a recommendation of something that maybe they might have missed or is more obscure, eight out of ten times, this is the title I'm going to come back with. I really like this movie a lot. And it always amazes me that it's not talked about more, especially considering that it is the feature film debut of one Roy Scheider. The story being told in Curse of the Living Corpse is your standard old dark house, reading of the will, cat and canary scenario. But the film itself is way more interested in being as gothic and as moody and as stark as the Italian gothic horror films of this time. The filmmaking here is uncommonly elegant and stylized, yet restrained. A lot of that due to director of photography Richard Hilliard, who was a regular Tenney collaborator. He wrote and edited Horror of Party Beach and co-wrote and directed Violent Midnight. But I think this is his finest work, and I think this is Tenney's finest work. And it has a lot of things going on in it in very particular ways that we would come to see later in slashers. There's a body count element with a masked, gloved, methodical killer who kills in ways that are unique to characters' fears. And so we have specific slasher gimmicks for the gags that we would see in later revenge body count films like Abominable Dr. Fibes, the Vincent Price AIP stuff. And here, the violence is a lot more gruesome in some places than you would expect it to be. And the methods are pretty brutal. Scheider plays Philip Sinclair, the alcoholic and seemingly traumatized son of recently deceased, abusive, manipulative, rich guy patriarch Rufus Sinclair. Philip's main rival is his brother Bruce, who is the worst. And I don't want to give too much away because it's an exciting watch with some rewarding payoffs. And it takes some twists and turns as whodunits should. But all of these characters are morally complicated and they have behaviors you judge, but they come from traits that you can relate to. So the punishment element of the killings don't always feel fair, but they are also tied to rules. There are rules, explicit rules set in place for these characters. And if they break the rules, they get killed. And that's the name of the game, right? That's what we see later on implicitly in certain slashers. Now, I have 
many thoughts on the idea of a moral code in the rules of slasher movies and whether or not any of these rules are actually legitimate, but I will get into that later. For now, we have a movie with explicit rules dictated to the characters, and guess what? Some of these rules get broken, and some of these people pay the price. Now, the rules come from an additional gothic element. This film is telling a mystery story, but it's also incorporating a theme popularized by one of the founding figures of mystery storytelling, Edgar Allan Poe, and that is the theme of the premature burial. You see, there might be some question as to whether or not Rufus Sinclair is actually dead, hence the living corpse of the title, which also foreshadows the supernatural element that would come in some of the first wave films, but largely the second wave slasher films, with killers that come back from the grave over and over again. We also get an example of the killer point of view shot through the eye holes of a painting 14 years before John Carpenter would have us take a look through the eye holes of a mask worn by Michael Myers. Which I think, again, it it just perfectly captures the idea of this film coming from this old tradition, eyes looking at you through a painting. I mean, that is standard stuff. That's in Scooby-Doo for crying out loud. But this POV shot that would come to be a major slasher trope, looking towards the future here. Now again, this this isn't the first film with a killer POV. That, That goes a long way back. There's even one in the 1927 The Cat and the Canary. And we'll revisit this film again, but at the moment, I just think it's super significant to bring up. It was shot in three weeks on an estate in Connecticut belonging to Tenny's father-in-law. It's a period piece that takes place in 1892, and it was released in April of 1964 by 20th Century Fox, the same month that Blood and Black Lace was released in Italy, But it would still be a full year before Blood and Black Lace comes to the U.S. And that's worth pointing out because Blood and Black Lace often gets credit for being the first, like, black-gloved killer movie. It's not that. Curse of the Living Corpse isn't even that. But they are early examples of that, and I think it's significant here because this also supports my theory that slashers don't necessarily owe their entire existence to the Gialli. That is a thing that gets said a lot that I always kind of bristle at because there were films in this country, a couple of them that even predate the Giallos, that had a lot of those same elements in them. Yes, yes, yes. Friday the 13th Part 2 lifted a kill directly from Bay of Blood. We'll discuss that at another time. But Curse of the Living Corpse was doing this stuff at the same time that Bava was doing it. And in fact, Del Tenney himself plays the killer in this movie when we see him, which is a thing that Dario Argento would become known for in all of his films. You know, it's always Argento's hands wielding the weapons and committing the kills in his movies. And if you get a chance, I highly recommend watching this movie. As of the time of this recording, it is streaming on Tubi. I think it's been there for a while. I don't expect it to leave anytime soon. That would be sad, but you should see it. Scheider's performance is terrific. Some of the cinematography is really stark and interesting and kind of like quietly beautiful here and there. It moves nicely. And there's some really great interpersonal drama and and the performances in general are great. These are all trained theater actors. 
and they're really putting a lot into what they're doing. And the, the dialogue, too, is just, I love it. There are lines like, the body is a long, insatiable tube in need of drink and relaxation, and reality has a way of betraying one's pronouncements. Just great lines being delivered by great actors. For the most part, there are a couple performances that are like, eh, I, all right, you had to take who you could get here, I get it. But even those are fun in that regional amateur filmmaking kind of way. Anyway, that's my piece on Curse of the Living Corpse. Now let's go ahead and talk to Philip Johnson, co-host of Look Good for the Boys, about why slasher movies. Philip Johnson. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm always bad at the... Listeners, this is Philip Johnson. That's me. I'm sure I already did this in the intro, but he is a friend of mine for 20 plus years mm -hmm. and co-host and co-producer of Look Good for the Boys. Correct. A horror gossip podcast. And now I'm finally invading your show. Now you're, yeah, you're coming on to this show. Yep. Because I wanted to talk today about, I want to give a little sneak peek preview of the next semester of ghoul school, as it were. I know I'm, this is a little bit premature because I'm not finished with the previous semester yet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes you like a little teaser of what's, you know, you get a peek at the dessert cart before you're done eating your entree Always, sometimes, yeah. right? You want to know what's coming. Yeah, so you can save room. Yeah, exactly. Save room. Don't binge on found footage. <laughs> when, when you have this coming up. When this is coming up. And we are going to make a meal out of this season, I feel like, even it's, more so than the found footage season. Because I mean, let's be real. This is the entree. Yeah. This is the meat. <laughs> found is, footage was your appetizer. Yeah. This is the thing that's nearer and dearer to my heart. And that's, I think, why I wanted to do this, because I'm really excited about this subject. And if you don't know, I'm sure, again, I've already said this in the intro, but that's slasher films. The next semester's subject on the kilobus, on the curriculum for next semester is, and that's semester, M-E-S-S-T-E-R. Semester. Okay. I don't know. That's not quite a spooky enough pun. No. Right? No. It's sort of like when the Crypt Keeper, you can feel him stretching a little yeah, bit. Yeah. You know, there's well, I mean, there were a lot of episodes. He had to yeah. come up with a lot of puns. Anyway, so that next semester is Slashers. Slasher films, the subgenre of slashers. And I think if you were to ask me what my favorite subgenre in horror is, that is going to be my answer probably 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. And I have Philip on because... Because I agree with you? Because you agree with me, yeah. <laughs> you also love slasher films. Mm -hmm. And some people, even horror fans, don't like slasher movies or even if they like them it's like a, a guilty pleasure kind of a deal it's a a secret romance it's a don't let my a24 friends find out i watch friday the 13th movies right kind of that thing i don't know why i said friday the 13th friday the 13th are practically respected at this point but in general yeah. i would say that the slasher subgenre is kind of seen and we've said this before on our own podcast it's kind of seen as the jocks yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. where it's, like, pretty and dumb. Yeah. You know, and it's easy to write off. Yeah. But they're also still really popular for a reason. Yeah, and some... Because they're hot. And some of those jocks probably read poetry. Yeah. Or know physics. Or like stand up to the 
to the bullies. Yeah, you know? a lot of slasher movies are smarter than they ever get credit for. Right, because they're first and foremost jocks. Yeah, and they're, and they're underestimated because they're wearing the letter jacket and everyone's like, ah, dumb jocks with the letter jackets. But you don't know. Yeah. Some exactly. of them are, are real sweethearts. And yeah, and I, I want to defend slasher movies. And there's probably people listening that don't like slasher movies. That's fine. That's fine. But I'm making it my mission to convert you Ooh, this, okay. this semester or this coming semester. So hidden inside this semester is a conversion camp. <laughs> no, no. Okay, wow. <laughs> no, you got to think about it more like, you know, that English teacher that made a difference. Uh, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, who, yeah. When you got to the class hating poetry, and by the end of it, you were like, I fucking love poetry. I mean, for me, it was history. I hated history until I had a history teacher who loved there history. You go. And yeah. then I fucking love history now. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You can rub off on somebody when you're that passionate about it. Was things. it one of those history teachers that would like come in with like period dress? Like they'd, they'd cosplay? No, the... I wish. No, okay. No, he was just always very excited yeah about it was history. just an enthusiasm yeah thing. yeah okay well i'm enthusiastic about slasher movies same with me so and so are you so maybe that's maybe we're the maybe we're gonna turn these kids around okay so for people listening right now who are like all right you have so and so you have this episode to convince me and then i'm jumping ship if i'm not in next semester when you start with this slasher nonsense i'm not listening how do we convince them why slasher movies? What is it about slasher movies that that makes them special to us that we love? They're, aren't, are they just dumb body count movies with stupid characters that are annoying that you want to die and that do dumb things all the time and it's all formulaic? Is that what they are? I don't think they are. But where do you stand on it? I would say two major things. I mean, first of all, slashers were my intro into horror, you know, yeah. so there's this like nostalgic piece to that, yeah. obviously. I, th- I think that's true for a lot of people of our generation. So there's a nostalgic piece. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, though, I just, I would say the two major things are, one, I find a lot of comfort in them. Yeah. You know, because it's like, there are a lot of other things in horror that can scare me a lot more than slashers. Yeah. But with slashers, it's sort of this like, and this kind of leads me to the second thing. It's like these variations on a theme. It's like listening to a cover song of a, a song you really love. Yeah. And even if you fucking hate the cover of it, it's still interesting to hear somebody else riff on it. Yeah. And sometimes, often, you'll hear a cover song where you're like, holy shit, I'm looking at this song a completely different way. Or this feels like a whole new song. You know, it's like people take it and they do their own thing and they take it different directions. And I just, I love that it has this structure, this base structure. Mm-hmm. And that people take that and do whatever the fuck they want with it. And sometimes often it fails, <laughs> but sometimes it, it becomes something really different or unique or interesting, or it redefines the whole subgenre. Yeah. Like, I just love that. It's like, here's your Lego set. Let's see what you do. But yeah. you, these, you just have these pieces. It's like, it's like ordering the nachos at a place. You know, it doesn't <laughs> matter what restaurant you're at. If they've got nachos, it's kind of hard to fuck that up. Right. So like at the very least, if you know, you like, cheese and tortilla chips you're probably gonna at least eat something that you know you like Mm -hmm. and every now and then you order the nachos and yeah they're soggy or there's too many chips not enough cheese or the salsa is weird or like it comes with like a fucked up topping like corn or some shit right 
but you still like at the you just scrape off the stuff you don't like or you just power through and you eat it anyway because yeah. it's nachos it's what you ordered but then sometimes you get nachos that are like mind blowing that right. like change your perspective of the world like what angel came to earth to make these nachos yeah. Yeah, like they'll put an ingredient on that you're like, not in a million years is this going to work on nachos, pal. But then you eat it and you're like, all right, you've changed my mind. I'm a believer. Or it's just your typical fucking nachos, but each ingredient is homemade and it's homemade to like the best that you've had. You know, the combo is just like, Jesus fucking Christ. This is exactly what nachos are supposed to be, but somehow it transcends. Yeah, absolutely. Slasher movies are nachos. (laughs) Yeah. No way. (laughs) But yeah, they're they're comfort food yeah. for me. I honestly, I I mean, there are slashers that do still scare me. Yeah. But for the most part, I watch them because they comfort me. Mm-hmm. They're the horror that I I feel the most connected with. Which is fascinating because they were so reviled mm-hmm. as discomfort. I think part of that is you know they got franchised and through that mass market sterilization sets in. But I mean, they were for a long time. People were like, this is filth, it's it's pornography, it's senseless brutality. But we watched them and we're like, nah, this was comforting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like chicken soup for me on a rainy day. And there are slasher movies that are challenging genuinely still, but yeah, there's a comfort to them. And I think that it's because of the formula that it's not just the nostalgia, right? Like, it's not just because we grew up with them. I think that what it is, is yes, nostalgia for me keeps me going to a degree in this subgenre. But at the same time, I think it goes back to the the music metaphor and the variations on a theme yeah. and seeing what different people can do with this idea, right? You take mm-hmm. this thread and then make your own thing with it. And sometimes it's terrifying. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's stupid, yeah. you know, but either way, I I always find it fascinating for the journey. Yeah. And because... The base of it, you know, the formula, the conventions, the, the the familiarity about it, the stuff that's like the chips and cheese of it, mm-hmm. that has its own history, you know? Like, slasher movies didn't just spring fully formed out of, like, a pervert's head in 1978 or something. Right. Like, they had a history in, you know, their predecessors, their forebearers in the genre, the old Dark House mysteries, the Jolly, the... Creamies, the Universal Monsters even to a degree influenced what happened with the slashers. The proto-slashers, the drive-in movies, and noir. Noir is such an influence. And, be, and noir was influenced by German Expressionism. So, and, and then that comes from Gothic literature. It goes all the way back right. to like the beginnings of storytelling in a lot of ways. And that's slashers have that. Slashers don't just have that, but I think that that's a fundamental cornerstone of what slashers are. And I think that's why people are so drawn to them and why they became such big powerhouses in the 80s is because it really tapped into this very subconscious need for this thread of storytelling that had been built upon since humans started talking. (laughs) And it really goes into these roots of why we tell stories in the first place. Yeah, And I feel like even though it can be very superficial to a degree and it can be very popcorn i i also think that there's a really important place for that in our pop culture yeah well they share a lot of common dna also with fairy tales Mm -hmm. absolutely and with like you know heroic stories even mythic tales of heroism 
you know, there's some of that in slasher movies with the final girls. Yeah, I mean, and the final girl is essentially the hero's journey, just yeah, retooled. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know? it's Gilgamesh. But, yeah, and the, the slashers themselves, they're the monsters. It's Grendel. It's, it's Enkidu. Like, it's, you know, monsters are, again, as old as stories. And slashers are just a new kind of monster at the time that they that they were introduced. And yeah, I think that they became such like they really tapped into something in the popular psyche, mm-hmm. like in 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 the collective human psyche in a lot of ways. Certainly, the American psyche. There was something that was waiting for slasher movies, and that's I think why they they exploded the way they did, and they went from this like this dirty you know, secret with video nasties and parents groups and Siskel and Ebert all like calling them filth and wanting them destroyed to, you know, when the second wave came and we had franchises all of a sudden. And it's like, well, now slasher movies are jazz. They're apple pie. They're cheeseburgers. (laughs) They're baseball. They are an American art. They're a a national cultural pastime. And Maybe that's going to sound like hyperbole to some people, but like, look at the fucking box office receipts for some of the Friday the 13th, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, you know? Well, and honestly, you just have to look at pop culture in general at that time. Yeah. You know, where like fucking Jason was on Arsenio Hall. Yeah. You know, like these (laughs) these figures were everywhere. They invaded pop culture. It was like you couldn't escape them. Freddie had a fan 900 number hotline. Mm -hmm. Like, what? He's a child murderer. Right. And he's like on lunchboxes and kids are dressing like him for Halloween. Like, yeah, Jason and Freddie were huge cultural icons. They were like Joe Camel or Mickey Mouse in the 80s. And still, like mm-hmm. you still, people yeah. still know who they are. But I think that's, I mean, I think that goes because of the fairy tale thing and the, the tales of heroism. There's something recognizable in these formulas that people are drawn to. But also like... They are, at least the early ones, were touching on some anxieties that we shared. Oh, absolutely. Well, and and, and not just anxieties, but anxieties made flesh. Mm -hmm. And they weren't even just anxieties about, like, whatever allegory you can tack on to a film. You know, whether it's it's Halloween is, oh, we're we're scared of the the kid we know, you know, in the small town. Like, horror comes home. You know, it's in cold blood or whatever. Or Friday the 13th, we're scared of the consequences of overbearing parents or Nightmare on Elm Street. We're scared of what our boomer parents do in secret, I, whatever it is. Well, and beyond that, I mean, I feel like it expanded to this idea of just like wanting to infect all of our safe spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of like our collective cultural psyche, like having this low level anxiety where we never felt safe anywhere. Yeah. And that tapped into that, you know, yeah. it, I mean, the, Slasher, boom, basically was just like, okay, where else can we invade? Yeah. You know, yeah. we'll we'll hit every every location, yeah. every situation, well, every holiday. And that's because it's again, it's the variations on a theme thing. It's mm-hmm. the like, well, we have this basic premise that you can plug a lot of variables into. Right. You can change a lot of these proper nouns and and tell the same story. So there's nowhere that's safe. We can do this anywhere mm-hmm. because it's that accessible. And deceptively simple. But also using that to speak about some complex things. The anxieties that you can look at, the fears that are reflected in any given horror movie, slasher or otherwise, they're, they're multifaceted. It's never just like, oh, Americans were scared of this. Like There's always, okay, well, what kind of Americans were scared of this? And what does that message send to Americans that don't fit that demographic? Like, 
what do other communities feel about this subject or these themes. But in slasher movies, it's part of the no space is safe thing, but it's also like what comes with that is it can be very specific. It can be very grounded. And if things are grounded and microcosmic, because that's the other thing about slasher movies, they're often very contained. Right. Most of the time, I think that's because by virtue of just like, well, it's cheaper to use one location when we're shooting. Yeah. But it's also just like, there's a neorealism quality to it where it's like, nope, it's stripped down, it's bare. Mm -hmm. And so it feels real. It's recognizable. Because of that, they also get to speak to anxieties about generation gaps and authority figures, much in the way that noir movies did as well, where there was a cynicism post-war America that was like, you can't trust the cops, you can't trust politicians, the world is a, is a dirty, unsafe place. And slasher movies are kind of taking that a little bit further. I would argue, though, whereas like noir has a, a grittiness to it and a an uncomfortableness to it that you walk away from not feeling the greatest. I would say that with slashers, and I think what made them so popular in pop culture, especially for the younger audiences at that time and into now, is that it is all those things. It is very grounded. It is neorealism, but it's also a roller coaster ride. It's something that when it's over, you feel like you can step off of. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, yes, obviously. Most of the time, yeah. You know, there there are some that get under your skin, or mm-hmm. you know, you might look under the bed or check the closet at night. But it feels more, like you were saying, more contained. Yeah. You know, it's it's those anxieties made flesh. And so in general, obviously this is not entirely true, but in general, flesh can be killed. And, you yeah. know, the, the final girl can overcome even if she loses everybody else or in some cases he. So it, it, it feels like something that's just more easy to digest. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think story-wise, yeah. The idea of like the major threat but also a lot of them leave lingering questions about, you know, the faceless threats or the, you know, the anxieties that are brought up in through the allegory or through the, the thematic elements of the film. Like, you know, these are movies that I think in more so than almost any other type of horror directly confronts the universality of our mortality, like treats the idea of like the, the dance macabre, the idea that like, we are all united by the fact that we're going to die and there's no escaping it. And like time is a, a meat grinder or a, a wood chipper and we're all just being fed to it. I think those ideas, I mean, again, there are exceptions, but I think more in slasher movies in general, we see that because also they normally tend to concern teens or young adults right. or people that exist in like this ecotone between childhood and adulthood where things are scary and uncomfortable and often overwhelming but still kind of in a bubble that's weird too right like these movies are contained but that's also maybe just by virtue of these these people these characters that we're often seeing in slasher movies their lives are kind of a bubble Mm -hmm. anyway yeah i just think that that because they're grounded because they're microcosmic because they can get so specific they, they can say more. It's almost like if the threat itself has smaller implications for humanity as a whole, which isn't the case in a lot of horror. A lot of horror is dealing with bigger ideas or the idea that the threat is going to be a lot larger. Right. Well, I, I, I mean, I think branching off of that, a big piece of that is fundamentally the way that the formula of slashers work. It allows this capacity, not just allows, but almost demands this capacity to like create a setting with characters that have lives that have things going on you're 
you're setting this like massacre up, this victim mm-hmm. tableau. And th- that piece is really important to the formula. You need to have the setting and people firmly in place in order for the threat to come along and fuck it all up. And in that, you get a lot of room to say a lot yeah. and to do a lot. And and every direction you take that in can say things or not. I mean, you can also throw that out the fucking window and just <laughs> kill people. Yeah. But a lot of people making these films choose to use that arena to build something. Yeah. I think another thing that we'll see is we look more closely at certain films is that in a lot of cases, people are having a great time making them. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of cases, these are young actors that are, you know, not really far into their careers yet, usually. And they're not doing it for the money, usually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, well, this, hey, it's a feature. I don't get to be in a feature in a lot of other things, but mm-hmm. slasher movies are giving me this opportunity to really do something. And like, yeah, and a lot of times they're actors that don't go on to do much else. So they're, they're having a good time making it. And the, you know, the people making them are, they want to, you want to have fun. Right. So that the movie's got to be fun to make. So you got to populate with characters that are fun to watch or, or relatable in some way. And I think that's a big part of it for me is that like, I have this, this like not insignificant, like sympathy and empathy for young people. My teen years were like everyone's teen years, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> confusing and, and turbulent. Yes. And the, you know, you go from the best day of your life to like, Oh God, the next six months are awful. Overwhelming, embarrassing. Overwhelming, yeah, <laughs> all of those things. Yeah, and it's a very, it's a very sensitive time. It's a very raw time, and you you feel very vulnerable and exposed at that time. And you're on the precipice of this great chasm we call adulthood, and that might as well be death. Everything feels so real. Everything feels so urgent. Everything feels so important. Mm-hmm. And. Like, that's the height of drama, right? In so many ways, you can do a lot of interesting things with that. Absolutely. And even non-horror pop culture treats that age like that. It, yeah. it just, all it does is take all those emotions and shit we're dealing with in that age group and make it worse. Yeah. Because it makes it seem like, oh yeah, this yeah. really is the precipice. This is the end of our lives. After this, nothing will be the same. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and horror just takes that and like channels it in a different direction, yeah. you know? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And because of that, I think even the filmmakers that don't know they're doing that end up accidentally doing that sometimes. Even the ones that are just like doing a quote unquote cash grab. Because of the virtue of this scenario, of this like boilerplate form letter that we have in the slasher setup, because of that, they end up just accidentally saying a bunch of stuff or making something very fun or or presenting us with characters and situations that are super relatable and super entertaining to watch. And they're iconoclastic. They're like sneering. Speaking of the formulaic situation regarding slashers, which I think I like that you're speaking positively about it (laughs) because a lot of times it's a thing that gets brought up as a negative, but formulaic limitations and confines, I think sometimes like, inspire the best innovation absolutely yeah i you know there are so many artistic minds that trash this idea of of confinement you know like oh i'm not going to color in the lines and it's like no sometimes having to be creative within the lines makes you your most creative yeah you know there are artists there are filmmakers i think that can work 
without confines that can really just like, yeah, just leave them to their own devices and let them go nuts. Like David Lynch. Like, yeah. Yeah, there are artists that can do that. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, getting a little exercise or a prompt or some kind of boundary gives you a problem. And you have to be creative to solve that problem. It's like the, the saying, you have to learn the rules to break them. Yeah. You got to know where the lines are if you're going to someday hope to like knowingly transcend them. And sometimes we get that in slasher movies. Well, yeah. And I've never had a problem with the formulaic nature of any kind of subgenre, but especially slashers because yeah. of that. Because again, it is such a super saturated subgenre that you have so much to dig through. And it's so fascinating, even the ones that fail miserably, just to see how they use the pieces that are out there yeah. to fail. And what they're trying and, and what they were hoping to achieve that they just didn't quite do. I love it. I love that so much. It's yeah. like a writing prompt and then reading all the responses. It's fanfic. You yeah. know, like it's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. where can people take this? You, you have the hallmarks. You have the thematic unifying elements or the gimmicks or, you know, a recognizable time and space, a relatable venue, a venue that you can put, set this story in that people will recognize. And then you have a protagonist group and you have a killer and you have a final girl or final boy. And these are the pieces. So yeah, it's almost like a Mad Lib or uh, create a character in a video game where you have all these sliders and these spectrums of things and a bunch of different presets you can choose and a little bit of customization you can do on them. I mean, I'd say more than a little customization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, honestly, I mean, the pieces there that you have are things, the ones that people expect yeah. are things that not only everybody wants, but everybody can relate to. Like the whole concept of the final girl, there's a reason why she typically, he or she, has the qualities that they have is because everybody can find a piece of themselves in that person. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and everybody can can see themselves making the choices that that person makes and like, you know, surviving this ordeal. Mm. So you have all of these Mad Lib pieces that make things interesting, you yeah. know, for any audience, generally speaking. It's just like, okay, well, I watched her survive a summer camp. Now let's see if I can watch her survive a cruise ship yeah. or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, who cares? Like, again, it's Mad Lib. Just mix it up and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the final girl is typically, they are varied mm -hmm. with, you know, profession and disposition and outlook sometimes. But typically they are young women who are vigilant and studious and a little anxious, yeah. a little timid, uh, but they need to learn to overcome that. Usually a little on the masculine side. Yes. You know, just dancing close to that yeah. border. Or they have to embrace a masculine energy, yes. you know, to overcome. But they're usually not the super outgoing or the mm -hmm. super self-centered. They're usually selfless. They're sensitive. They're vigilant. They usually tend to look to the future. They usually tend to not live in the moment, but to be planning for the future. And what I find so fascinating about everything you just said explains exactly why I think that not only were slashers hugely popular, like at their rise in the like late 70s, 80s, into the 90s, but like specifically that our generation, the, the counterculture people, the like queers, the losers, the nerds, yeah. the goths, 
like all the people that didn't fit into mainstream society latched onto these movies because the final girl you just described described the traits that all of us in those positions had to develop just yeah. to survive in the yeah. world. And so these were movies that we could connect with the central protagonist because it's like, okay, we know what it's like to be you. And instead of like a bunch of bullies, we just have one fucking killer, which feels easier <laughs> because we can just put yeah. it all into that. And as long as we survive or she survives, you know, like we can yeah. feel better. Yeah, they are. The, the final girl is the avatar for the, the wills and desires of the viewer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes final girls were outcasts, you know, uh, not super socially connected. And, you know, we would see those final girls and be like, oh, I relate. I know how that goes. Sometimes you get a final girl that actually has friends and a social group. And you're like, oh, good for her. Right. You know, it's almost like you live vicariously through her. Totally. Whatever a final girl was, you knew this is the person I like. This is the person I'm supposed to relate to. Like, so I'm going to see my way to whatever variation they've given her, whatever new spin we're looking at, I already like it. And with The Killers, you had much more variation. People say these movies are all the same, but like slashers are pretty varied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's typically a Michael or a Jason type silent stalking character. But not always. Right. Some of them, you know, some of them are nonverbal. Some of them are very vocal. Some of them are engineering-minded. Some of them are art-minded. Some of them are outgoing. Some of them are not outgoing at all, and that's the problem. (laughs) You know, some of them are out for revenge. Some of them, we don't know what their motives are. You could get a lot more creative, I think, with the killer, which, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of slasher writer and producers understood that fully. There are movies you watch where you're like, oh, I like all the kids in this. Man, they really could have done something better with the killer. But then there's there's enough gems out there. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's the thing is that all these, even so many hidden gems that you stumble across and you're like, well, this is a great variation yeah. on this. Yeah. The one that just popped into my head, and again, I, I'm sure plenty of people have seen this, but I just recently saw it last year, was Just Before Dawn. Oh, man. The, the yeah. two killers in that. Yeah. And I was like, this is great. This is something new. It's, and I love it. It is. It really is. Speaking of that then, like, is there a type of scenario that you prefer over others in the slasher movies, like venue-wise? I tend to most gravitate towards wilderness You slashers. like the wilderness slashers? Yeah. Okay. woods wilderness. I mean, again, look, my intro into horror, my entry was the Friday the 13th series. So, like, it's all camp. It's all yeah. woods. And then do you have a preference as far as, like, summer camp versus retreat? Because wilderness can also include the desert, the jungle... Uh, but you like woods, right? Yeah, woods. And honestly, for me, it doesn't matter if it's a summer camp or not. I think it's more just like whatever puts people out in nature. And mm-hmm. ideally, there's some water feature nearby, whether it's lake, river, maybe some waterfalls would yeah. be great. <laughs> I absolutely love and almost demand that in this setting, a big storm occurs of some kind. Oh, yeah. I love you know, a storm in a, a good slasher. storm in a slasher is great. I love a good storm in a slasher movie. If, if a slasher movie doesn't have a storm in it, even if I love the movie, I always feel like, eh, yeah, there's something missing. Like Friday the 13th Part 3. Yeah. You didn't put the sour cream on these nachos. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Or at least on the side. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I just want them on the yeah, plate. Yeah, like in Halloween, <laughs> where you get a storm during the the escape sequence, but that's it. That's yeah. the only storm. Yeah. That's, that's the sour cream that's the on sour the side. That's the sour cream on the side. Yeah. <laughs> Still was there. You know, Black Christmas 
It was snowing. It's di- you know. Yeah, well, that's different. It's that's different. still. A, I mean, it's a storm. Yeah. What kind of killer do you like usually? Like of the types of killer, let's create a killer. Let's okay. do the create a slasher customization. Do you like a verbal or nonverbal? None. Nonverbal. Yeah. Okay. How char- Where do you want to put the charismatic slider? Is he? So first of all, is your killer a man or a woman or non-binary? Non-binary, slightly masculine. Masculine. Okay. Mask. <laughs> mask. <laughs> we got a masked mask. mask. Yeah. <laughs> do they have a gimmick? Do you like a gimmick on a slasher? Like the Prowler has a pretty good gimmick. Harry Ward and the Miner in My Bloody Valentine has a pretty good gimmick. Okay. That isn't as important to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you would consider this a gimmick, but I really like my slashers to be like almost feral. Ooh. Okay. So like Don't Go in the Woods Alone Just Before Dawn yeah. or Madman. The killer in Madman's kind of feral. Baghead Jason. Wrong turn. Baghead oh, Jason. Oh, wrong absolutely. turn. Yeah. 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 Not completely feral, but just to have these yeah. feral elements, like to not be able to connect to their mm-hmm. victims. A lot of slashers do the, try to do the whodunit thing, mm-hmm. where there's like a reveal. Is that as important to you, or do you not need that? I do love that yeah. in movies, but like it's not important to me. Gotcha. And if I had to choose between a whodunit slasher and a non-whodunit slasher, I would choose the non. But if I watch a whodunit slasher, I still love them. I like a good whodunit slasher if the reveal is something ridiculous. Yeah. Like there was no killer or the final girl was the killer, you know, stuff like that. I like the ridiculous ones like that, but I like a good like mid series installment where it's like, we know what this slasher is Mm -hmm. and now we're getting a little desperate. So we have to do something kind of weird with it. Like, like a Friday five, a Friday seven. Yeah. You like the like, the experimental yeah. variations on a theme. Yeah. You like when they have to get a little desperate in trying to make it different. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. I, I love. I agree. Yeah. Send yeah. them to space or have them fight a psychic. Yep. Or make it somebody else is the killer, you know? In which case, hey, you brought the whodunit back. Congratulations. <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm with you. So nonverbal, do you like them to be hulking or just kind of like lurking. I'm going to hearken to one of my favorite slashers for the answer yeah. to this question for this reason is I love the Leatherface presence in the sense that he is both hulking and fast. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I was yeah. love, I, I, when I was reading the uh, Chainsaw Confidential Gunnar Hansen's memoirs from the set of the first Texas Chainsaw, he was talking about how he would work out every morning. He would go on runs and he really built up his cardio to the point that he was actually faster than the actress who played Sally, <laughs> oh, Marilyn wow. Burns. And so he had to like slow himself down in their chase sequences because he kept catching up to her. Oh, and I fucking love that because it, it shows like yeah. you have this giant fucking guy and he's so fast, you know, like I, I love that so much. Yeah. Do you have, so okay, since we're on this then, do you have a favorite slasher killer? That's yeah, tough. It's tough, right? That's tough. That one hurts. Yeah. Cause like I feel like I'm whoever you say I'm breaking the heart. You're gonna of the hurt somebody ones. else. Yeah. yeah. I gotta give like runner up honorable mentions to like Freddie. I love your wisecracking, but it just doesn't do it for me all the time. Yeah. Okay. You know this and I'm sorry, but Michael doesn't do it for me all the time. Yeah. It really comes down to three for me. <laughs> wow. Okay. And I, I'm thinking about this. So the three are it's it's Jason. Yeah. It's Leatherface and it is Ghostface. 
Okay. Problem with Ghostface is it's a different person. It's a different person every time. every time. And Leatherface, here's the thing. This is another question I have for you, actually, is to see how strict is your definition for slasher? Because to me, I don't like to get too pedantic. Right. But I think Leatherface is a slasher in a series of non-slasher movies. Okay. I don't consider any of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies to be slasher movies. Okay. They are close. I consider the first one to be a proto-slasher. Mm-hmm. For sure. Oh, yes. But it's weird. I consider all the others to be post-slashers. Interesting. <laughs> I was well, like, yeah, I look, don't want to get too pedantic, and I start throwing the word post around. Ugh. Look, here's the thing, is that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies are in their own parade. Yeah. And that said, I do feel like Leatherface is still a slasher icon he, for a reason. He, yeah, and he's either way, he's grandfathered in. Agreed, agreed. He absolutely is grandfathered in, and... So as a favorite slasher series, no. But as a favorite slasher, I again, the, the qualities I've already alluded to, the things about him that I just really love, yeah. the way that he moves and how, how hulking he is and how feral he is. Jason also embodies some of those qualities. Ghostface, I love the clumsiness. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's, that's yes. where I love the ghost yeah. faces. Well, and I love that Ghostface is a mantle that multiple people don. It's one of the few times you really do have this idea of like, they did it once in a Friday the 13th movie, but that idea of like, no, the hockey mask is the key. The the look is the thing. And with Ghostface, it's like, yeah, the look is the thing. But also a big part of why the Ghostface costume was such a device in the first movie is because it was, I think a lot of people that are younger than us don't know this. That was a generic costume. They sold that everywhere. Right. But I love that Ghostface, it's not about the identity of the killer as much as it just is like, no, this is the this is Ghostface. No matter who's behind the mask, the mask is the thing. Yeah. So I'm going to answer Sorry. your question in a very convoluted way. If you ask me which of the series I would most like to watch right now, oh, just okay. on, a, on, yeah. a, any, on any given day, yeah. it'd be Friday the 13th. Yeah. If you ask me which one I would most like to see a new one of, it would be... Texas Chainsaw. Okay. If you ask me which one I would personally like to make myself, oh, wow. it would be Scream. Wow. And Ghostface. Okay. I like that approach. I'm going to give you my responses now. Okay. Yeah. Same. <laughs> for, Wait, really? Well, not for all of them, but okay. for the like, any given day, you want to put one of them on. I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street is close, but I think it's Friday the 13th. Okay. If you were to ask me what I want to see a new one of, <laughs> honestly, at this point, it's Halloween, just because I know David Gordon Green's not making it. Are you sure? No, I don't know. <laughs> no, okay. Nightmare on Elm Street. That you want a new one of. Yeah, if you ask me what I want a new one of, Nightmare on Elm Street, okay. I think. The, uh, l- I, let me let me clarify the way I approach this question. It's not just what I want a new movie of, but which slasher I want to see next carried on yeah. into something new. And that's why I picked... Leatherface. Honestly, for me, actually, it's not even a series. It's just I want like a legacy sequel to The Prowler. Okay. Or My Bloody Valentine. Sure. Or something like that. Something we don't even talk about. Like bring Cropsy back and do another burning movie. Yeah, I'll watch why, the shit out of that. Why there were never any more burning movies. Yeah. I don't know. You know, friend of the podcast, Dan asked. Yeah has a theory that if the burning had made it to theaters before Friday the 13th part two, it would have been the one that would have 
spawned a series. I believe that. And I think that's sure. an interesting yeah. theory. Yeah, I want to go to that dimension sometime. <laughs> the burning or, dimension. <laughs> There's like seven burning movies and a remake, and they did a Cropsy versus Madman. What is this? <laughs> but I, if I were to make one, oh, I got, I'll tell you, I got killer ideas for Halloween sequels mm-hmm. and reboots. And I got killer fucking idea for a Nightmare on Elm Street reboot. I feel like you should take on Halloween, though. Yeah. That, it needs to be yours. The problem is I have too many Halloween ideas. That is a problem. I would be like, okay, do you, which do you want to hear first? Michael Myers versus the Children of the Corn or my prequel idea or the third Rob Zombie movie idea? <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so on the other end, what, do you have a favorite final girl? <sighs> that's, so, that's so tough. Yeah. And it, I know... It is. There's a part of me that wants to be just super basic about it and pick Jenny from Friday the 13th Part 2. But if I'm really running through all of them, and there, there's just so many great ones. Yeah. I I honestly think that I kind of want to go Jill Sholin as Maggie and Popcorn. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a good one. Mostly because I love Jill Sholin. Yeah. There's something about her voice that just, like, I fucking yeah. adore. And I just, I find her fascinating and I, I wish we could have seen more of her. She was in so few movies, relatively. You know? Yeah. But she was great. I mean, everything that I can think of that yeah. she was in is like... Popcorn, gosh, yeah. Stepfather. Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, she's great. And I really love Maggie a lot. Mostly because I, I relate the most to Maggie. Because I mean, you were in f- film school. She, yeah, she was in, she's in film school. She exactly, has, it's, the, it's the specificity of the proper nouns. It's the like, here's a slasher for Philip Johnson. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and her friends, the people in her class with her, are all people that I would have been friends with or yeah. am friends with. I think her life is my life the closest. Yeah, it's a good one. It is so good. I love my, popcorn. M- mine is Alice. From of the first Friday the thirteenth, it's always the first. It's always Alice from Friday the Thirteenth. Can I ask She's, you a question? Yeah. If Laurie Strode had never appeared in another <laughs> Halloween movie after Halloween, would it have been Laurie Strode? It might have been. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I love Laurie Strode, mm-hmm. and her moment with the pumpkin sitting on the you know the little pillar thing outside of the, her house. Yeah, that's you. It's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I also just love that. I just, it's like that moment and her driving around with Annie as the sun goes down. Like that is huge. Mm-hmm. But I do think Alice edges her out. I don't know. There's just, there's, there's more conflict in Alice than in Laurie Strode, I think. Well, I think Alice is also given more opportunity in, in, in a much shorter time frame to establish herself with multiple levels of relationships. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Again, it's that specificity. You know who's a, another top contender for me, though? Who? Jess from Black Christmas. Do you have a favorite wave of the waves of the different slasher movies? Like like, I guess first wave would be 78 to 84. And then 85 to like 96, right? Well, I would... See, I think... I think that the second wave ends in like 89, 90. Really? Well, no, because you still had movies up to like 92. I think it trailed off into the 90s. Yeah, it trailed off in the 90s. And then you had sort of like, it wasn't really a wave anymore. It was like a, an ebb. It was like yeah. the wave rolling back out to sea f- throughout until about 96. I, uh, uh, 94 is when Wes Craven's New Nightmare came out, right? 
Yeah, but I think that that was like the signal of the coming wave. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I think basically 90 to 96 is like a an ebb period. Yeah. And then 96 to like maybe 01 mm-hmm. is the third wave. And then the fourth wave I feel like is 06 to 09. It was real short. <laughs> so here's what I would say. Yeah. When I first got into horror, it was all about second wave, like the 85, 89 yeah. era. I'd watched a lot of the movies, but I really didn't get an appreciation for the first wave until I was an adult. And I think because they were just kind of darker and harder to for me to swallow for some reason at that age. Yeah. I, 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 maybe at that age, because of my own anxieties, I needed the goofiness mm-hmm. that came with the second wave. And that led me to my obsession as a teenager, because I was... 13 when Scream came out and it became my life. (laughs) I was all about it. And so I grew up with Friday the 13th. I went through puberty with Scream. But now that I am a full-fledged adult looking back on all of these, I think I'm more first wave. Really? Yeah. Okay. And the more first wave I watch, the more I, I am cemented in that. And I think it's because it was when everybody was just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what stuck. Yeah was like nobody had quite decided what the formula exactly was. Yeah. Yeah, it was still like when it was a little punk rock. It yeah, was still it, exactly. a little DIY, still a little dangerous. Yeah, yeah, so you could like dismiss everything but one thing yeah. or two things. You know, it wasn't just like, okay, we have to have each of these things yeah. in each movie. There's more chaos in that era yeah. that I find interesting because it's a little more unexpected. It's the reason why my genre is Italian horror is because I love the unexpected. Yeah. And nothing's more unexpected than Italian fucking horror. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, for First Wave is wild. It's yeah. the Wild West of slashers. Yeah. Well, then in that First Wave, we have 1981, which is the year that slashers broke. It was the class of 81. It's like it's, the water breaking. Yeah. It's like, it's the, well, it's, when more slasher movies, I think, were released than any other year. Yeah. Well, at least as far as like the the notable ones that we still talk about. Mm-hmm. What is the class? What's your who's your class of eighty one valedictorian? Oh God, damn! Because mine is the Funhouse. Toby uh, of Hooper's course, the of Funhouse. Course it is, yeah. And it's I know there are probably people that don't consider it to be a slasher movie. It's a slasher. It's, yeah. It's I I count it. I don't, maybe I'm only saying this because I don't have a list of every 81 movie in front of me and because I just saw this movie, but there's something about graduation day that just is imprinted <laughs> in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Because it just, it feels so cemented as a slasher. Yeah. You know, but it's, it's the first wave. It's like not just the first wave, but the, the, like the front of the first wave, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's Linnea Quigley. And that film is just kind of goofy. It is. It's one of the less sleazy, gritty, more goofy, fun, lighthearted. We're trying to make money and we got to get kids that are going to make out to come to this theater to see this. Mm -hmm. It's definitely more of that and less of the like, can you handle this (laughs) kind of a thing. Keep repeating. It's only a movie. (laughs) Yeah. How about proto slashers? Do you like any? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, the tough thing about that is that so many things fall under the yeah, umbrella of proto slasher. It really is true. I mean, obviously, like you know, Psycho and Peeping Tom are classic yeah. examples, but that's like such basic stuff, you know. <laughs> Don't um, feel weird about saying Psycho. <laughs> Psycho's a great fucking. Movie. It's great. It's great, but like you know, it's the basic answer. 
I, my answer is Alice, sweet Alice. Okay. I don't know, actually. I mean, I don't even really consider Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw proto slashers. You just consider them slashers? Well, yeah, like intro slashers. You know, like proto just doesn't seem to fit them. I don't think proto fits Black Christmas. I do consider Black Christmas to just straight up be a slasher. It just happens to be like on the outside of the waves, anticipating the wave, I guess. But I, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it just doesn't do, and we're going to get into this in the semester, because to me, slasher isn't just any one set of things, but there's a checklist, and I feel like you have to have more than you don't from that checklist for me to, to consider it. But, you know, people have different definitions of these things and different groupings. I mean, we didn't even call them slasher movies. Until like the 90s, I think. Mm -hmm. But off the top of my head, I don't know the years of a lot of the Gialli. Because, you know, at a certain point, they started running concurrently with slashers. Yeah. But there are obviously plenty of those that serve to me as like fun prototypes. The one that always stands out the most in my head, Don't Torture a Duckling. Yeah. I don't know why, but that that movie just sticks with me. And again, you know, honestly... Any any kinds of these films that do things that are unexpected, that take an element of the formula and break it, but just that one thing, especially yeah, if it's yeah. just like that one thing, yeah. then it fucks with you even more because it's like, no, you were playing by the rules, you know? And I, I hesitate to say this because it's a spoiler, but such as like killing kids, you know, yeah, like anytime yeah. you kill a kid in a slasher, I'm just like, I'm fucking on board, you know, because that's that one rule that most don't break. Yeah. You know, and you do it and it's like, okay, okay. You know, yeah. what other bets are off? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I say this a lot, the brown M&Ms, that metaphor with Van Halen, no brown M&Ms in the M&M dish in their rider so that they didn't, because they had such an elaborate lighting and sound setup that it was like, we don't want to have to check everything. But if they did this thing, with the, they didn't put the M&Ms in the dish, then we know they paid attention, which means everything else is going to be up to snuff. Mm-hmm. But it would be sort of like, you know, when you, if you come into your the green room and there's a, a bowl of M&Ms, right? You're like, okay, so everything's fine. But then when you get on stage, just a fucking bucket full of brown M&Ms tips over <laughs> and just pours brown M&Ms all over you mm-hmm. as if to be like, yeah, we read and we said, fuck you. Yeah, and yes, like, that's a very good analogy. <laughs> yeah, I like it when a horror movie is like, yeah, we know the rules, and by the way, we're Go breaking. Fuck yourself. Yeah, fuck you. We're breaking them, <laughs> and we're doing it, staring you in the yeah. face yeah. while we do it. Do you have a favorite slasher like trope? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of them, but I think the one that I would say was my favorite. I I really love extended chase sequences, mm. especially if they have like a cat and mouse element to them. And I, I really love, and, and again, I feel like Scream perfected this art. It didn't start it, but it really perfected and made it more commonplace in the more modern slashers of giving that to more than just the final girl. And honestly, as time has gone on and people have learned to bend and break those rules, I love that we've gotten to this era where it's like characters can have that and you don't know whether it's going to end in their death yeah. or not. And that's great, Yeah, you know, because up until that point, as much as I love the chase sequence, the cat and mouse, like... If it was the final girl, you typically felt pretty secure. You know, oh, everybody else is dead. There's just this one person left. We're good. But it's still fun to be with them on this roller coaster, this like fun house ride. But then as we've gotten on more, I just love these like 
A great example from my mid-teens is Courtney Cox in Scream 2. You just saw Randy die. Yeah. So it gave, gave you the sense of like, okay, they're not safe. They can kill anyone. And then Dewey gets like separated from Courtney in the, the video building. And she has this great cat and mouse chase sequence with Ghostface. Like, and the whole time, you know, on your first watch, you're like, you don't know. And her being honestly, which is hilarious looking back now, the most likely to die of the remaining survivors because of who she is as a person based on previous slasher tropes. And it's super tense. It's really good. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I, I love playing with that. And I love the more that people are using those rules to play with that. Do you think there's still room to play with that now in 2022 these conventions do you think that there's there's still life left in them absolutely i think slashers will always have a place in horror i think that we need to get beyond this legacy shit because what it's doing is it's bogging us down and unlike with chucky where by embracing every aspect of every part of its legacy it almost has become this like intentional comedic parody of the legacy sequels yeah but it's still finding new things to do with it and like by getting so ridiculous it's able to like be incredibly relevant which i mean that's a different conversation i just mean as far as the legacy stuff goes that's the only one i feel like that's doing it right if we stop getting bogged down by this legacy shit i feel like there's so many more avenues to explore in the slasher genre I honestly, I I think we need fresh blood in there. I think that Gen Z needs to come up, kick all these bougie, elevated horror assholes out of the picture (laughs) and make something fucking weird again. Make horror weird again. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any scenarios venue wise or theme wise or just, you know, what are the what are the Mad Lib variables that you would like to see in slashers are there any that you have always wanted to see a slasher movie do but they just haven't done it for whatever reason or haven't done it well well yeah the answer to this actually gets me really both nervous and excited for this next year because something that i've always felt like slashers needed to do and do better is the high rise in the big city oh yeah and we're getting both of those i mean evil dead's not a slasher but adjacent and Scream is coming to New York City. New York City. City, yeah. And it makes me nervous because I feel like there's so much potential there, but there's also so much potential to fuck up. Yeah. And I feel like it's going to embrace the joke more than it's going to embrace the horror of it. Yeah, that's kind of a tricky balance to maintain for sure. And honestly, I don't mind the joke of it. Like the jokes of Jason being in Manhattan were some of the best parts of him being in Manhattan. Oh, yeah. Him kicking that boombox yeah. is still just like... like Top notch. That's the whole fucking reason that movie exists for me. <laughs> you know, that and Kelly Who. Those are the two things mm-hmm. I love. In the, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of things I actually do like in that movie. But yeah. But yeah, I want more big city slashers or like high rise slashers. Yeah. What would you say? It's hard to say. I like a movie theater slasher. Mm-hmm. But we just got one of those. Last man. Last man. So so good. So well, hey, on that note, are there any unsung slasher movies that you would like that you think don't really get the recognition they deserve? Oh. I mean, I feel like there's a ton. <laughs> yeah, there are a, there lot. Are a lot. And again, recognition they deserve is a very 
yeah. loose term. And it's it's really hard to gauge too because yeah, there that's the other thing about this subgenre is it has a rabid fandom. Right. Like the people that like slasher movies love slasher movies and seek them out and will watch all that there are to watch. But I guess the real question is if there are people listening that don't like slasher movies or don't know yet that they like slasher movies. Mm-hmm. And they've seen Freddy and Jason and blah, blah, blah. But they're looking for what's a slasher movie that they definitely haven't heard of or haven't seen that like might turn them around on that, that might show them some of what we love in it. Okay. So I'm just going to, I'm going to point out the three that I had set aside. These are three that probably if you are into the slasher genre, you know, but are still not very often talked about. And I feel like are kind of like, you know how, okay, when you're introducing somebody to an artist, yeah. like you have, okay, here are the hits. All right, mm-hmm. here are like, you know, the the stuff that, you know, you would listen to next. And then here are the deep cuts. The yeah. stuff that if you get, if you like the top and you like the middle, you're going to fucking, this shit is going to blow your mind. Yeah. But if you start here, you're not going to get it or you're not going to love it. Okay. You know, so it's like that. Okay. So for me, the three that come off the top of my head are Nightmare Beach. Oh, Yeah. Oh, Which, yeah. I mean, maybe I'm just saying that because it's so not available anywhere. Yeah. And nobody talks about it, but it's such an interesting it's... movie. That's a movie where the characters and the setting are top yeah. fucking notch. Yeah. You talk about the cynicism of a noir. Oh, God. It's all over that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. There's everyone in charge. And that's another thing I like about slasher movies is a lot of times authority figures, they're either inept or corrupt or both. Mm-hmm. And boy, does Nightmare Beach have that. Yeah, across the board. Yeah. Second, I would say Hellbent, I feel like is a really forgotten slasher gem of the early 2000s. It's a gay slasher that has some really interesting stuff. God, it does. And it so bums me out that it's not available anywhere except on Here TV. Yeah, someone should put that on Blu-ray. Right? Yeah. Because it just bums me out that that flew under the radar completely because it really... It does a lot of interesting things. The characters are really interesting. The slasher himself is really interesting. The setting is amazing. The setting is great. It's a slasher movie set in WeHo on Halloween night. Right. Which is another, you know, you're talking about big cities and high rises, large parties. I love when slashers are set in large parties. Yeah. Hellbent is really good, too. It's really good. Yeah. And the, the characters are fascinating. Yeah. It's a good movie. And finally, the third one that just came off the top of my head when you asked me this question is Intruder. Oh, the Scott Spiegel slasher in a grocery store? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really good. That movie hits all of the, like, when people use the word cheesy, I hate it to Mm. describe this kind of stuff. But, like, the Intruder is that. Like, it's the cartoon version of a slasher movie, almost. But it's so good. And again... Great environment, great setting. Yeah. That grocery store, the like, and it really gives you a strong sense of the environment. Yeah. Like you have a map of that store, and then you have a very strong sense of who each of these people are, what their roles are, what what their interconnected dynamics are, and then you just throw in a murderer. We need to bring that back. Workplace slashers, yeah. you know, slashers at a at a grocery store or a movie theater, or I'm done with office buildings, but like shopping mall mm-hmm. department store slasher bring yeah. that shit back what are your unsung ones the prowler from mm-hmm. 81 mm-hmm. it's hard to recommend to people that 
like don't like slasher movies, I guess, because it is it's cruel. It is a mean-spirited slasher movie mm-hmm. with some of the most disturbing kills. It's Savini effects work. It really does show you just how much a good kill gag can affect your investment in a character. Like all of those kills hurt to watch. I'm I'm probably not selling this to people right now. <laughs> but final exam. Yeah, another one of my one. favorite campus slashers. Mm-hmm. It's so so great. Killer Party. I haven't seen that one. Blood Rage. Blood Hook. Bad Dreams. Oh, the horror show. Have you ever seen the horror show? No. House Three with Brian James and Lance Henriksen. It is a special kind of fucked up. It's like shocker. It's so dumb, but I I love it. What would you say to anyone that's sort of on the fence that you want to get excited about the slasher semester that's coming? The best thing about slasher movies is there is multiple ones for everybody out there because that's the fun part about playing with the theme is it covers all of the fucking bases. And so you can find something that will either get under your skin if that's what you want or like tickle your funny bone if that's what you want or like you know play with your expectations or hit you in an environment that you're familiar with or with people that you are familiar with like it's so easy to find your own niche in slasher compared to any other horror subgenre because it covers everything and it is so rooted in reality you can find a connection in some of them anywhere to your own life If you are on the fence about slashers, just buckle up and stick with this and you will find one (laughs) that's like, holy shit, this is me. This was made for me. Yeah. And I think that like most things, you'll have a greater appreciation for a thing when it's put into context. Like you contextualize something or deconstruct something. Chances are there's a piece of it that's going to resonate with anyone. Yeah. Stay tuned, folks. And do the reading. Because I think you'll find some stuff for you. Just like Philip says, I think you're going to find some stuff that's for you. Or at least some stuff that's like, oh, hey, that's where that comes from? Huh. And, uh, okay, maybe I'm throwing Andy under the bus here a little bit. But (laughs) I would encourage you to reach out to him or me and just tell us who you are, what your interests are, kind of a little bit about you and where you come from. And we will give you a slasher movie that is very much for you. That would be a fun game. We should do that on Look Good for the Boys. Okay, I'm in. Yeah. Speaking of, where can people find you, Philip? I'm so glad you asked. So I host (laughs) Look Good for the Boys, a horror gossip podcast, along with my best friend of 20 plus years, Andy Sell. Ah, he sounds great. Of Ghoul School (laughs) that you're listening to right now. It's sort of the the more goofy, tongue-in-cheek, yeah. queer counterpart to this. Yeah. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Look good for the boys. Yeah. Best place to get more information about that is anywhere podcasts are. Or also on Instagram at lookgoodfortheboys, spelled out. Or Twitter, lookgoodnumber4boys. Check us out. Yeah. There. Thanks for being here, Philip. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Hopefully you'll have me back. Oh, absolutely. You're going to be coming back for a, for a Substitute Creatures episode at the very least. Love it. I want to have you on an extra Dreadit, but it's like we watch so much stuff together anyway that it's like I can't program a double feature for you. I bet you could. 
Maybe, well, maybe it'll happen soon. I don't know. Class deceased.